0: Uh, In terms of our our preaching over the next little while, um, we've done some sort of last-minute re-changing of of plans that have been established over the last little while. So, um, you remember last week we we announced that that the sermon in Matthew 13 was going to be a standalone sermon before we began our time back in Romans again this week. But we've run into the same issue again with Lucy's baptism, which is that next week when all the visitors are here, we would still be in Romans 7, which is, as a baptism sermon, not ideal. So... um, Really, really important passage of scripture, but we're going to save it for a week when it's, when it's just the family in house, not, the, not all the visitors. And so um, we have extended our time in Matthew 13 for another week, and then next week is Luke 7, another parable. Um, and then after that, we'll be picking up Romans again. And then a few weeks after that, Christmas, because it's that time of year somehow. Who, who saw that coming? Probably everyone who was looking at a calendar. Um, So today we find ourselves again in Matthew chapter 13, if you want to take a look, and we're just going to pick up where we left off last time and just do the next part of Jesus' sermon. Um, So last week we were there, uh, we saw that Jesus is teaching a crowd during kind of like the peak of his public ministry. This is all eyes are on Jesus, the whole region is talking, hey, this, this guy has rocked up, he's doing miracles, he's teaching with authority, could this possibly be Messiah um, and we see this one occasion where this large crowd gathers and Jesus has to push out onto the Sea of Galilee in a boat in order to be able to be heard by them all. And he preaches a sermon from a boat. And his sermon is a series of parables, um, a series of illustrations drawn from everyday life that illustrate eternal truths. And so last week we heard the parable of the soil, sometimes called the parable of the sower sower which taught us that different people will ultimately respond in different ways to the same gospel message. Um, there's the same word, preached to all, the same message from God, preached to all, different reactions. And we saw that Jesus told us this parable in order to prepare us to experience this thing. Um, there will be people who at one time look like they are running well, whose faith will not endure to the end, sadly. This is going to happen. Um, they will fall away and some of them never to return. And then there are people who will, of course, persevere in their faith to the end, the the genuine believers. And what we saw is that our work of mission, the work of God's um, Christians in this world, is not to change people, that's beyond our ability. We can't change someone else's heart. Um, And therefore, because it's beyond our ability, it's beyond what God expects of us. That's not what we've been sent into the world to do. We care about the outcomes for others. We care about them deeply. We pray for them. We just can't control them, do you understand? Our job is not to change people, our job is to sow the seed, which is the Word of God, and the response to that Word is between, ultimately, God and them. It's not ours to carry. Um, We also heard that the difference between a faith that perseveres and one that collapses um, is to do with how a person receives the Word of God. The faith that perseveres is the faith that hears, understands, and continues in obedience to God's Word, which is just like saying um, the difference between someone who perseveres and someone who doesn't, um, saying that it's about how you receive God's word is just like saying it's about how you receive God. Right? Jesus, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. The person who hears God's word is the person who receives God. They're no different. A faith that perseveres dwells in Jesus. It stays connected to him. It hears him. It responds in faith and never outgrows the need to listen. That's that's the difference between those who persevere and those who don't. That is how the good soil lives. So today we turn to the very next part of that same sermon where we get a second parable, another illustration by which we can understand what the kingdom of God is like and the themes that it touches on um, are entirely connected to what we've just heard in the parable of the sower. Um, And fortunately for us, this is another one of the parables which Jesus chose to explain so that we can know exactly what he was talking about when he gave us this picture. Why don't we have a read starting in verse 24 of Matthew 13. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his fields. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds amongst the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. And so the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? He said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. Okay, here we go. Jesus is giving us another illustration familiar to his audience. Okay, agrarian society, subsistence farmers, they know what it is to plant uh, a field full of wheat. Um, It's quite possible that when Jesus told this story, he actually had a very specific weed in mind. No, not the asparagus weed growing in my backyard, um, but a thing called darnel, which looks exactly like wheat when it is young. But as it grows up, as as the head forms, as it begins to seed, it becomes apparent that this is not wheat, this is another plant altogether. Instead of the the golden head of wheat that you would hope to grow and turn into food, you get these black seeds, which are quite poisonous. Here's the trouble. In the early life of the plant, they both look the same. So let's say that you and I had one of those neighbours. A classic street feud kind of scenario. We've all been there, right? You no, know, a real doozy. You have a birthday party, they call the police, That's kind of neighbors. And so you give their kids health food for Halloween. And they trim your trees which are hanging over the fence, and so you report their dog to the council. Just just normal suburban life sort of stuff. Um, and then after that, they try and poison you, because we've all been there. Too specific? Too specific. Jesus explains the parable's significance. This, this man with the bad neighbor... It says, he left the crowds and he went into the house and the disciples came to him saying, explain to us, verse 36, the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him Found. Now, those of you who were here last week, you'll remember that we talked about how this parable that Jesus has told us um, has a, a different relationship with time than the one that we have. Um, that the, the, the parable was not about understanding how we experience time, one thing after another, sequentially, and each detail of the story surprising us. The parable was told from the eternal perspective rather than the temporal perspective. It wasn't um, instructing us to try and change what kind of soil we are. It was instructing us that ultimately people will prove to be one kind of soil or another. This parable has a different purpose. This parable is not to teach us to understand. This parable is to teach us how to respond to what we have previously heard. How do we respond to the knowledge that there are some people whose faith will persevere and some people whose faith will not? And the answer is, not too hastily. Not too hastily. Think about it with me. What we heard last week was that different people will respond to the same message from God differently. There will be some, and we love it, who hear and persevere, the true Christians. And it doesn't matter what the road looks like for them to get there. In fact, the details of everybody's story are going to be largely quite different It's not just about how you begin the race, but primarily it's about how you finish the race That determines what kind of soil you belong into in Jesus illustration and there will be some who will hear the Word of God Who will respond in faith and then their faith will persevere to the end. They're called Christians and there'll be others who will reject our God There'll be those who reject Him outright, who who hear the message and thanks but no thanks, and that's the best response that they will ever have to the Word of God. And then again, there'll be others who seem like that they have accepted Him for a time before they leave Him. They will seem like they have accepted Him for a time before they leave Him, and ultimately they will prove not to be His disciples. It was a surprise to the disciples when Judas betrayed Jesus. It was not a surprise to Jesus when Judas betrayed Jesus. Which means that for the whole of his public ministry, right now in the story as he's preaching this sermon from the boat, Jesus has 12 closest disciples, 12 closest ministry partners here on this earth, and amongst those 12 there are 11 whose faith is genuine, And one whose faith is fake. The whole time that Jesus was ministering publicly, this was true. And that also means, this is the uncomfortable part, that sitting here side by side today are true believers and pretend ones. I'm not trying to single anyone out, even though it would be fun to do so. But it's true, right? It's true. That's alarming for a number of reasons, that there would be genuine Christians and pretend ones sitting side by side in a building, in any church, in any part of the world, on any given Sunday. It's alarming because we have a question like, what if I'm one of the ones who falls away? And that's, a, that's an important question to ask. Uh, and the solution to that question, if that's your dilemma, is the most ordinary of things, the basics of the Christian faith. If you don't want to be that one, then do this. Be sincere in your approach to God and don't neglect to sit with him. That's what the good soil does. I do not believe that this is why Jesus is telling us this parable. If that's what you're worried about, we'd have to go elsewhere in the Bible. Rather, he's telling us the parable of the weeds to inform his church what to do with the pretenders. Now, look, I've I've had to try and summarize the category of person who's, who's here, whose faith is not genuine, ultimately, with a single word. I've come up with pretenders, it's the best I can do, and it sounds unnecessarily insulting. Right? I'm, not, I'm, not trying to, um, I'm not trying to suggest that I think I'm better than you if, if, if this is the category that you fall into. Not that you would probably call yourself that either. But we're going to call you something. What are we to do with the fact that the sincere and the insincere are mingled together even here amongst our members. There are a a few things that we're told to do. It's really helpful. As a church, there are a number of activities, a number of symbols, a number of celebrations that we go through as a church where we affirm that we believe that somebody else has become a Christian. It's a really important part of what churches do. There are things that we do where we affirm that we believe that somebody else has come to faith. Um, for example, we baptize people who profess faith in Jesus as Savior, and right now, Lucy is really worried that she's about to become my sarcastic illustration. <laughs> and if she wasn't before, now she is. Yeah. Next week, I believe, is the time when that will happen again. Though it does appear, Lucy, if, if correlation equals causation, that between now and next Sunday, the government will announce further restrictions upon our attendance. What what, what we do when we we baptize somebody is that we read all these promises in the Bible that God gives to the true believers, to the good soil. And these things all prove true for the good soil. Um, we, we, We read passages, we talk about what it means to be born again. What it means for the old to be gone and for the new to have come. We read that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive our sin. We talk about what it means to be adopted by God. We talk about what it means for the angels in heaven to rejoice when one of the lost ones come home. We talk about the seal of the Holy Spirit who is our guarantee for the day of redemption. Sometimes we get it wrong. And we baptize somebody whose faith is insincere. We baptize people who fall away. The very first person that I ever baptized, to my knowledge, no longer claims the name of Christ. I baptized them here, before I was a pastor. That creates a lot of confusion, doesn't it? Like, we've got to hold this alongside all of these things that we just read with such certainty that when someone is saved into the hands of Jesus, they are very safe there. And yet we watch some fall away. How should we respond to this? Should should we be hesitant to baptize anyone, lest we get it wrong? Where do we draw the line of caution? Where does sanity stand? Where is it appropriate to draw that line? We would not be the first in history if we were to choose to draw that line very, very cautiously. Very cautiously. For example, by the 300s, when Emperor Constantine was baptized... It had become common to withhold baptism from everybody until they were on their deathbed. They had wrongly come to the conclusion that if you sinned after your baptism, you were no longer saved. And so they would wait until you were dying just to be super safe and just hope you got there in time, I suppose. Because people were dying left, right and center. It's the 300s. Uh, Today, after this um, church service, we will have, as Mike announced, an AGM. And at that members meeting, we will do the other thing that we as a church do when we affirm someone's faith. We will welcome some new people into membership, I hope, if you vote yes. We will affirm, in receiving these people as members of our church, a belief. And the belief is this, the most important condition of being a member of the church is that you are, to use the theological language, a regenerate person you have received the Holy Spirit and be born again. You have been converted and become a child of God. That's the most important thing that our members have in common. And so that means that the members of this church are those, as far as we know, who are not just a part of this body, the local church, but are a part of Christ's body, the true church. That's what we're saying. That's the most important bit. And sometimes we are wrong. And we receive people as members who proved not to be his disciples. There have been many people recognized as members of this church over our 150 years next year of existence as a congregation who have claimed to be Christians and later reneged on their faith. And so who can be a member? If we can't be 100% certain of what is happening in somebody else's heart, should we just abandon the process altogether? To feel it. To feel the tension. Some churches go this way. Um, actually, there are some churches that are so narrow in their view of what it means to belong to uh, their church as being connected to belonging to the true church that they think that unless you're a part of their one congregation, you couldn't possibly be saved. right? Like cults and stuff. They, they, they think this all the time. And the irony is, even those churches who are that narrow on their concept of membership still say goodbye to people who say they believe one thing and later on change their mind. It doesn't work. You can't be that narrow. It's not possible in this world it turns out that there are two mistakes that we can make when it comes to recognizing somebody else's faith mistake one is to be too broad it is possible to make that mistake the bible does give us categories where it becomes appropriate to tell someone you are not a believer or even you are no longer even welcome at church that that is possible the super short version is, you've got to be trying real hard to get that one, though, right? You've got, you've got to put effort in. That doesn't, like, you can be an atheist and be welcome here. You, you've, got to be, you've got to be putting in the hard yards, the hard yakka, if you want to get yourself shown the door. You have to be behaving yourself in such a way that you are harming others' faith. There's one example in Titus chapter 3. Um, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Okay, it's possible. That doesn't, um, that doesn't happen often. Not all disagreements are a person stirring up division, do you understand? But the person who intentionally stirs up division over silly things, who undermines the gospel and tries to harm other people's faith, you get a warning or two and then you get, then you get shown the door. That is not the main issue that this parable is addressing. You can be too broad in allowing people who should not be allowed in, in. In, 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 affirming, in baptizing anyone without asking questions. There's, there's another way we can make that mistake, right? You can just, do you want to get baptized? In you go. And later on we found out that's already happened eight times. No, this, this parable is aimed at the other extreme, which is the extreme of being too narrow. And this was by far the bigger issue in Jesus' day. The Pharisees and the other religious leaders were turning away people who wanted to come to God and saying, you can't come here because you look too messy. You might be one of those sinners. we're We're not down with those. Jesus tells us that if we tried to make our church perfectly pure, if we tried to aim at never, ever, ever, ever make that mistake, we would probably get there by accidentally rejecting Genuine believers, along with the pretenders, for lack of a better word. I'll read it again from verse 27. The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. And so the servants said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? And he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds... You root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers gather the weeds first and gather the wheat separately. How do we tell if somebody else is the wheat or the weeds? It's a tricky question, isn't it? How do we tell if someone else is the wheat? or the weeds, and the first thing we see is that ultimately, we don't know for 100% certain. We are not the judge, and today it's good news to know that you are not the judge. They have a judge, it's someone else. God does know who is the wheat and who is the weeds. And at the end, he will sort them out. And in the meantime, there are certain things that we can do by which we can affirm someone else's faith, even with that room for error. We look for certain things by which we affirm someone's faith. We we look for these when we baptize people. We look for these when we welcome people into membership. And we say, yes, we believe you are a genuine believer. We look for an ability to articulate the gospel. Can you explain to us what it means to be a Christian? That's a pretty good sign that you understand what you're talking about. We look for... A credible profession of faith. Can you articulate how it is that you came to place your faith in Jesus as the Savior? That's a really important, a really important thing. Um, We look for crucial repentance. When you find out that you are in sin, how do you respond? Do you turn away from your sin and turn to God and say sorry and ask to be restored? That's what repentance is. The good soul repents of their sin. The good soul's not sinless, do you understand? The good soul repents. We look for the fruit of the Spirit. We see that in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. I got one of those wrong. I think it's gentleness, isn't it? With those things in mind, if you look for those things in someone else before affirming, yes, I see that you are a believer, you will be right most of the time. But our judgments will be imperfect. Which is why it's comforting to know that ultimately we are not the judge. Actually, the the, the Reformers coined a really helpful idea to help explain to us this phenomenon. Um, They talked about the visible and the invisible church. The visible and the invisible church. It was really helpful for them to talk about this because in, in the world that they lived in, when the, the Catholic church of the medieval period was the only church, um, they would make all sorts of proclamations around people's um, salvation that should never have been made. If, you have been through our, if you've been through our systems, if you've, if you've signed the dotted line, if you've, if you've been through our symbols, then we can say with confidence, you're one of ours regardless of how you live. Right? That's just not true. It's, it's what they would say. Now, the Reformers talked about a different thing. They talked about the visible and the invisible church. The invisible church is the true church. Ultimately, there is only one church. Neonogon Baptist Church, am I right? <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. We are just one small part of the true church. The true church, the invisible church, is made up of everyone, everywhere, for all time, who belongs to Jesus. That's the invisible church, the true church. Everybody who is his is part of this one church. Jesus only has one church. There is one small problem with the invisible church. It's invisible. You can't see it with your eyes. The invisible church is present here in this room today. We know this, but not through our eyes. And then, separately to the invisible church, is the visible church. The visible church is made up of local congregations. This is the the, the church meeting on the street corner in your suburb. The Inaugural Baptist Church is part of the visible church. And the visible church has a great strength. You can see us. That's really helpful, isn't it? Less collisions. It has a weakness it's not entirely pure. Some parts of this visible church are not really part of the true church, it's imperfect. And it can be a bit tricky to tell the difference across the course of a life. Understand this. No one, no one who has ever fallen away from Jesus, never to return, was part of the invisible church. Not a one. The elect don't fall away. They persevere. And if they stumble, they come back. Uh, First John 2.19 says this about some who had left the church in the first century. This is the Apostle John talking. He said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Feel that difference? So sometimes, we are going to welcome pretenders into membership. Sometimes, we are going to baptize a false faith. Because you can fool us. You can't even alarmingly fool yourself. But you cannot fool the God of heaven. He knows who are His. And on this earth, the visible church will never be perfectly pure. So what do we do with all that? This is how we are to live in light of this knowledge in regards to the faith of others. Firstly, as a church, this means we do set our standards, but we apply them with grace. We do. If you want to be baptized here, that's, that's great. We love baptizing people. We love celebrating with people. But before we push you under that water, we've got some questions. We're going to ask you to articulate to us that you understand what you are doing and that you have a reason to be doing it. We're going to set our standards, but we're going to apply them with grace. Secondly, if you are the hard soil, the rocky soil or the weeds, we would rather that you be here than not. We would rather that you be here than not. Because sitting here each and every week, being a part of our lives throughout the rest of the week, you are going to constantly hear God's invitation to you to come and be his for real. To lay your independence down at his feet and surrender and receive the saviour who can rescue you from your sin. And that's, that's the best place for you to be. We'd prefer it. Next, we don't play with sin or take our salvation for granted. Lest we prove to be. The weeds. We don't muck about with that. Isn't it it confronting that in in Jesus' own illustration of the kingdom that the the difference between the wheat and the weeds can't be seen straight away. It's, It's not until later. It's not until later. At least to our eyes. Don't muck about with it. Don't don't dabble. Don't think, because grace exists. Sin is risk-free. No, rather, we continue in repentance. We continue to take our need for the Savior very seriously. And we continue to rejoice like those who have been rescued. Because we have been rescued from a very, very great peril. Lastly, we wait for this. Matthew 13, verse 43. Then, on that day, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. (laughs) Our Lord, your preaching, your message to this world is so confrontational. It bites, it's got teeth, and we're grateful. Who, who, who talks like that? Apparently, Jesus, you never read the books on communication that told you how to make friends and influence people, and we're grateful for that too. We thank you for truth, stated clearly and plainly and accessibly there are some realities in this world that each and every one of us needs to respond to Lord in this world there are those who are yours and those who aren't and Lord from our perspective it's hard to tell which is which sometimes so we pray a few things Lord would you grant us who are yours humility not in taking our place with you for granted but to hold on to it as precious, to treasure it, to protect it. That we would keep in step with the advice given to us by your Apostle Peter, and ultimately you through him, to make our calling and election sure. We don't want to take our place with you as a given in ignorance of facts, Lord, we also pray for our humility towards those who sit next to us. We may have our suspicions about what is happening in someone else's heart, but we can't be perfectly sure. And would that change the way that we relate to one another? Would we see our role in the lives of the others here as being one of encouragement and love and continual Exhortation. Lord, would my life be useful in the lives of others to encourage them to persevere? To call them to persevere? To help them persevere? As far as it is mine to do? Lord, alongside this, we also pray for the confidence of faith which can exist despite all these things. The confidence that on the last day, Your true believers, the Invisible Church, will shine like the sun. Because you have done what you promised to do. You have made your bride ready for you. Because you will never fail. And your promises are true. Thank you that you are God and we are not. Help us to live in faith towards you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.